Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, July the 12th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Uh, The 12th of July is one of the most significant dates in the history of Ireland, and it's public holiday, of course, north of the border. We wanted to take this opportunity to discuss the current political mood of the political tradition, which today celebrates the victory of William of Orange over James II at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. To mark the, the day that is in it, we wanted to take the current political temperature of unionism in Northern Ireland, and maybe to look a little bit at how it has arrived at this particular point. Uh, born in Belfast in 1980, Aaron Edwards, who joins us today, is a is a senior lecturer in defence and international affairs at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst and an honorary research fellow in the School of History, Politics and International Relations at the University of Leicester. And his new book is called A People Under Siege, The Unionists of Northern Ireland, From Partition to Brexit and Beyond. Aaron, you're very welcome. It's nice to be with you, Hugh. Um, Just to start at the very beginning of the book, it it starts in a very kind of personal fashion. You're there uh, amongst your own community um, uh, at a Loyalist March, which is getting ready to set off. I just got to quote a little bit from it here. You say, uh, I knew being on the Whitewell Road that day amongst Loyalists who felt themselves to be under siege meant I was part of something greater than myself, part of a community with both real and imagined. We were Protestants loyal to Her Majesty the Queen, her heirs and successors, and to the union between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Above all, though, we were loyal to each other. Um, Do you think that um, we in the nationalist community in the island of Ireland understand that sentiment? Well, it really depends who you ask. Um, I think that for loyalists and unionists, uh, there is a feeling that uh, no one likes us and we don't care. And, um, you know, it was probably best captured in the travelogue by Dervla Murphy in the late 70s when she called those loyalists who were on parade, those orange men that she observed as a closed the rank, uh, closed ranks unionists or loyalists. And it's always a feeling that you have to sort of um, be very closed off from the rest of the world, not just in Ireland, but further afield, that you can't let change um, or any of these kind of international forces pushing for change interrupt your Groundhog Day. And so I I think that the idea that it's very insular and very, um, you know, tethered to that territorial mentality in, in the Northeast, I think is very difficult for people to understand, especially as the world has moved on. And, and we find this community that are really motivated to maintain the status quo, uh, very unchanged and, and very resistant to um, even having conversations about about change and constitutional change in the constitutional future of of Ireland. Um, so I think that, yes, it would be um, treated, I guess, the, the loyalist community as something of an exotic species. 
It's um, as as the title implies. It's a history of the last hundred years, really, of 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 Northern Ireland from a unionist perspective and through the the, the story of of political unionism. I suppose, really, it's it's fair to say, as well as you know, the society in in Northern Ireland. Um, I found it quite very bleak. You know, there wasn't. Uh, I was trying to think of a similar history, and I have read similar histories. I'm sure you have as well of the South, which have their ups and their downs, and have their f- terrible failures. There were terrible things that were done, but I suspect a similar history of um, of of the state south of the border would have more points of celebration in it than there is in the, in the story you tell. Absolutely. I mean, this is about sort of snatching. Um, you, you know um the idea of a new future you know built up around the good friday agreement from the jaws of victory you know that we can't have that new future because we are losing out and the, it was a perpetual cycle it actually goes right back to partition of this feeling of insecurity and to to open up and be positive about the world and be optimistic about the future be optimistic even about that sorry the present um uh, never mind the past. It's it's just a mentality that's sort of very fenced in, closed off. And um, yeah, I mean, it's not a happy story. And uh, but but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are condemned to to that. You know, f- thinking like that and feeling like that. And so I think that towards the end of the book, I do map out a you know, more positive and optimistic vision for the future but it's it's largely absent um in any kind of unionist histories or histories about unionism in Ireland and i suppose would it be fair to say that in, in in order to map out that more positive vision for the future one was one has to understand the past and those 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 negative strands within the past i mean looking you know reading the book and reading the history i mean starting with the you know with the establishment of 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 the northern state itself th- there must have been an opportunity to set up a um, a state that that actually to be that actually ascribed to the values which uh, which unionists claimed made them want to be part to remain part of the United Kingdom of civic order of equality of of opportunity in a way that 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 wasn't actually manifested in the way that the northern state developed. Yes, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, essentially, what they built there was kind of populist, and uh, you know, and I mean a populist which pandered to sectarianism. Uh, and to a very exclusive form of um, political order. Uh, basically, you had to be Protestant and you had to be uh, loyal to the crown. Um, you, if you were disloyal, then you were singled out for special attention. And they brought in special powers in, in some cases to really police society and to oppress those who, who really found themselves out of sorts with this new unionist reality. So um, I think the 50 years of unionist misrule is probably a good uh, way to describe it. And it was actually a term that came not just from within nationalism and then later became republicanism, um, but also within that loyalist community, they felt that they had been left out of the equation as well. So not everybody was included. The, the, the sort of society that was built that was very one dimensional, very, um, very much um, about, you know, ascribing to an identity that the elites had sort of laid down. This was the way that you behaved. Um, it was almost like a little Ulster agenda with a kind of, um, you know, with a populist feel. And the people, yes, they were excluded. They weren't embraced. I mean, discrimination was rife. 
uh, and discrimination actually, um, you know, found um, a ready kind of um, set of recruits in, in those loyalists who, uh, when they returned from war, for example, um, on both occasions in the First and Second World War, that they had to, you know, be reintegrated back into the workforce and that there were these pop- populist movements you know, out with the government, had come online, very sectarian, very much um, blaming, uh, you know, the other side. Um, So there were sort of these forces from the official, you know, government side and from the streets. And of course, the most famous of all is Ian Paisley, who in the 1950s, you know, um, finds himself uh, a rabble rouser on the streets, basically telling those who we would later call loyalists that you know their jobs are being taken away from them by Catholics and uh, and that you know the the only way to preserve Ulster was to fight for it and to fight those in the other community and by the 1960s of course that becomes a grim reality. A, a recurring theme in the book is how attempts to develop a different sort of politics, for example, through parties like the uh, the Northern Ireland Labour Party or even certain independent unionists with, with left-wing tendencies in the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, that, that the, the powers that be, that the unionist establishment, which is far more upper class really uh, for the most part, uh, was always able to pull out the sectarian card. And did so very effectively on a number of occasions in order to stamp out that kind of a threat to the what was essentially a one-party state. Yeah, sure. And I mean, the siege mentality that I write about in the book is very much about, um, you know, uh, you know what we have, we hold no surrender. And the reality, the, the grim reality was that they were under siege from their so-called betters. Um, that really we have, you know, working class people who, um, or probably most of them just interested in, in carving out some kind of uh, life for themselves and their families are, are being, um, you know, shepherded into this kind of, you know, as I've said, sectarian um, vision for Northern Ireland, um, where law- only loyalists are the true the true heirs of that state. Um, you know, it wasn't a state, of course, it was part of the UK, but what the unionist government did there, the regime built up a very exclusive form of, um, as I've said, political order. Um, now, the parties that that exist there, the independent unionists and the Northern Ireland Labour Party had other ideas, and they were seen as essentially Lundies within the midst of uh, the Ulster Unionist Party. They were the ones that gave the Ulster Unionist Party, as it existed, um, 50 years dominant, the biggest headache when it came to election times. So Northern Ireland had the trappings of a democracy, I wouldn't say a liberal one for a number of reasons, but these parties contested the elections and in certain areas, particularly in Belfast and Derry, they, you know, the Unionist Party had a job of work on its hands to try and, you know, get secure those seats and get back in and, and form that majority. Now, it wasn't under serious threat, but they did those parties did pose a challenge and they essentially said, look, we want the rights um, in this place as, uh, you know, the people across the water have in, in GB. So that that was a that was a really fundamental in some senses an existential crisis for the old unionist government. It had to liberalise. And of course, that comes uh, dropping slow, but in the 1960s under Terence O'Neill. Yeah, the fear of Lundy's, um, you know, the, the the name comes from the, the um, supposed traitor who 
uh, uh, was it lifted the gates in the wall? Was it betrayed the um, the apprentice boys in 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 Derry? That that recurring fear of the of the traitor within seems to run very deep within the within the political culture of unionism, doesn't it? Right to this day, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anyone who sort of speaks uh, creatively or imaginatively, uh, you know, they're fair game for being lundied. Um, never, never mind people who are kind of uh, not, you know, unionist in their orientation who might come from a kind of Protestant background. So, uh, you, you know, I'm I'm sure that uh, that that is a recurrent theme, and I'm sure that it's one that's leveled against people who kind of you know think alternatively uh, within that community who are probably um, afraid to speak out because. To die a social death, whether it's in a Republican or loyalist community, is is worse than physical death. You know that people will shun you and people will will cold shoulder you. And and, and actually, within a community where the sense of belonging is so intense, it's um it's an incredibly powerful force, and it's what gives people that little bit of an adhesive to hold together their lives. You know, when everything around them, when for example. Um, jobs um, disappear or, um, you know, they haven't enough money to feed their families when there's a, a real sense that um, their la- their livelihoods are on the line or or whatever rights they, they think they have. Um, but that building that adhesive and, and keeping them together um, is, um, you know, can be a miraculously uh, wonderful thing and a positive thing, a positive force for change. But very often within um, those, you know, loyalist communities. It's about keeping everyone in check, keeping the herd together, rather than letting someone break away uh, and become, you know, in the immortal sort of um, uh, term of abuse of Lundy. Um You return on several occasions over the course of the book to um, the the, um, the suburb, the estate of, of Rathcool, um, which is where you're from, and you, you tell the story of Rathcool. Maybe you could kind of give give our listeners an indication of what sort of a place Rathcool is, what its history is. Well, it's a, a working class, predominantly working class housing estate, almost exclusively working class. Um, there there are people who have these days, you know, got better jobs, better cars and so on, but they would still think of themselves as working class, I guess. Um, but the, the estate itself falls into a number of kind of um, catchment areas in terms of how we understand the socioeconomic status of people there. It's essentially low income. Um, it was one of the largest housing estates in, in Ireland and, and Western Europe at one time. Around about 10,000 people lived there. Uh, and uh, it was built, the, the sort of foundation stone was laid in the 1950s. It was supposed to be this example um, model um, village within a bigger area called Newton Abbey. Uh, and, uh, and that model village was to be the homes of, you know, for the heroes essentially who come back from the Second World War um, or who had, who had um, you know, helped the, um, the unionist government at least show that it was part of the war effort. Um, so, so that's how the unionist government sold it. And then over time, of course, it expands in size. Um, but by the uh, outbreak of the Troubles, uh, intimidation is rife and uh, the formation of paramilitary groups comes quite quickly in Rathcool and then 
the those it was I should say it was a mixed housing estate, Protestants and Catholics living side by side, but certainly by the early seventies there's large scale intimidation of Catholics and they move out to other parts of uh, Belfast. And and uh and and then the same with um those sort of Protestants moving in from other parts of Belfast into Rathco. Um so the estate gets a bad reputation simply because um, of the um, the almost sort of siege mentality that develops there. Um, the people are seen as exclusively loyalist. Um, it's deprived. Um, the, the investment in the area is slows. Um, a lot of the multinationals, uh, uh, companies that come in in the 60s, um, begin to, to leave the sort of eastern, uh, East Antrim area where people, and in North Belfast, where people who would live in Rathcoon worked, um, and then you start getting a lot of unemployment. Um, essentially, it's the same story across uh, these islands then in the sort of 70s and the 80s. The late 80s, early 90s, there are a number of uh, murders there um, of Catholic um, Catholic working class people who are coming in to work in the estate. It gets a really bad reputation and essentially it becomes synonymous with loyalist paramilitary groups. And that's the backdrop really to um, the story of, you know, this once... Uh, model village for unionism, which was all about peace and prosperity, uh, um, you know, falling apart and becoming, you know, essentially a, a very embattled contentment. So the story of Rathcoole is very interesting, it seems to me, because I mean, in one way, as 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 you say yourself, there, it's a kind of story that'd be familiar from housing developments across, you know, the UK and in and in in Dublin, indeed, as well, and and other parts of the Republic. But then it's overlaid, and I think it's fair to say, is made much worse by the troubles and sectarian violence and the even worse economic despair which that brings, as well as the kind of the the corruption of gangs and and all the rest of it. Too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that deprivation, um, you know, low uh, levels of educational attainment and so on are, are just, you know, fact of life there. Um, the jobs go, as I say, something like three quarters of people um, of a working age in that estate are dependent on some kind of benefits by the early 90s. I mean, it's just a horrible state of existence and um, very few get out. And if they do get out, they move into sort of um, a little bit more lower middle class um, areas further up um, the Carmony Hill there um, or elsewhere. And I think it's a sense of um, for those who, who get out that they have they have managed to get out and make something of themselves. But then the left behinds, the people who, who are still there, even to this day, you know, they still suffer from those socioeconomic challenges and from the malign influence of paramilitary actors. To what extent has paramilitary violence over the last half a century, or what you might say the second half a century of the of the history of Northern Ireland, to what extent has that shaped or reshaped um, the unionist community, in particular the, the loyalist working class community you're talking about there? I think there's a contradiction really in terms of the unionist community generally and paramilitary violence, because in what I explore in the book in places like Fermanagh and other parts of the province, so not just in Belfast, uh, but you can see there an antipathy towards taking the law into your own hands. But there's certainly those in, in deprived and marginalised areas, uh, you know, who don't have um, the influence, the positive influence perhaps of politicians getting stuff done. There's an ineffective cadre of politicians in parts of Belfast representing places like Ralph Cool, where they basically have no political leadership whatsoever, although they vote in in, in large numbers at the UP and UUP. But uh, they also vote in other other people at local level. 
such as Mark Langhammer. So there is a restraining influence there from those like Mark Langhammer on the left, you know, who, who are returned um, topping the pole in the 1990s in Rathcoon. Um, so a contradiction, but basically, unfortunately, it's almost as if the state has ceded um, responsibility for security to those actors. They are very, very powerful. And the RUC and a lot of the RUC officers uh, or former RUC officers I've interviewed talked about, you know, um, who aren't cited necessarily in this book, but another another work of mine about the challenges of facing down paramilitary gangs. I mean, these are huge organizations with thousands of members. And so you know, with a very small police force, there's only so much they can do. Uh, and and so there, um, you know, is an example of how even though the government has a responsibility to bring in security during the troubles, that they find it very difficult to do so. And also there are people in the community who who go to paramilitary groups, loyalists um, in loyalist areas, um, because they don't see the police as effective. And so they go to paramilitaries. Uh, and I've written about this um, in various newspapers over the years where they essentially that um uh, you know, rough justice uh, and paramilitary um, policing, uh, as some might call it, uh, is seen as a, a you know an alternative to to basically um, engagement with the state. Is that a sort of mirroring effect of what was going on at the same time in Republican working class areas, where because there was no acceptance of the of of, of the state itself, that you know that Republican organisations, the IRA in particular, took on that rough justice role. I guess in many respects, um, although it's, you know, they, there are different reasons, um, that, uh, loyalist paramilitary groups take on the form that they take. One example would be that, uh, and it's often been said to me in my research, uh, it's reflected in, in part in, in people under siege that, uh, those within the sort of loyalist community who had any kind of leadership, um, uh, uh, you know, ability about them, they joined the security forces. Uh, and, uh, and, and basically paramilitary groups were led by those who, who were left. And, uh, and so the, the ability really to sort of manage, um, a, a transition, you know, after the Good Friday Agreement, after the paramilitary, uh, ceasefires, that fell to people who really didn't have the, the skills. Whereas in Republican communities, you know, especially with, um, ex-prisoners having grown into a very cohesive cadre of people, they were able to lead the, the IRA essentially off the battlefield and, and very shrewd political operators who built up a kind of infrastructure there over many years, whereas in loyalist areas, it's really just the rule of the the, the iron fist uh, or the, you know, as it used to be said, the hard man in the neighbourhood. Uh, and uh, I think that, yeah, it's, it, it is similar, but there are differences, I think, uh, particularly when you look at why Republican paramilitaries largely wound up and loyalist paramilitaries were left behind. Yeah, I want to dig in a little bit more into those questions of, of the loyalist paramilitary movements and the political movements associated with them as well as they emerged after the um, after the ceasefire. We're going to take a quick break, just come back after this, just to remind you that if you're listening to this podcast and you like what you hear, you might want to subscribe to the Irish Times. Just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. We'll be back after this. So, Aaron, you were talking about the the, the leadership, the not very impressive leadership of, of loyalist paramilitarism, not having, I suppose you could say, the kind of intellectual heft, the ideological coherence that, that their, their equivalents on the Republican side had. I mean, but there were movements around the time of the, the negotiations for the Good Friday Agreement. There were the emergence of, of political parties associated with, you know, the UDA and the, and, and the UD, UVF. And they had a, they had a, some 
somewhat diff- different political take. In fact, I think you, you draw a direct connection between some of those people, people like David Irvine and Gusty Spence, and the old Northern Irish Labour Party, which was trying to bring class consciousness into Northern politics in the decades before that. Yes, so in the 1990s, the emergence of uh, the PUP, I mean, it had been around for, for some time. It was formed as a political party by Hugh uh, Smith and, and others in the Shankill. Uh, and then um, grew branches across Northern Ireland, but mainly in the east of the province. And uh, it, it had contested elections at local government level. Uh, and then by the 1990s, beyond the ceasefires, the likes of David Irvine had run, um, uh, had put himself forward, Billy, Billy Hutchison and, and Hugh Smith and so on. Uh, and they became electable, or at least they, they attracted some votes. Uh, and uh, David Irvine and Billy Hutchison were probably the two best known they they then sort of essentially um, took the mantle up um, of loyalist paramilitary, um, you know, thinking and and leadership, uh, and 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 you should say that they they were you know political confidants of the UVF. Uh, in the other case of uh, Gary McMichael and David Adams, they gave voice to the UDA through um, that political party, the Ulster Democratic Party. Um, they're, I mean, they, they have changed names over time, but essentially they, they are offering uh, some kind of way forward for the paramilitary groups. And the paramilitaries at times were quite willing to, to follow that lead. Uh, and the 1990s are, of course, a well-known period when that happened, especially engagement through the loyalist paramilitaries with the Irish government. Uh, and, and then the British government. So, so that's well, well established. But then they, um, either fell out of favor with the electorate or died. And, uh, and once they were removed, you know, they weren't replicated. The, the, the idea that, you know, David Irvine, it's often said, uh, by people, particularly on social media, when there's a, you know, some kind of issue with the loyalist community, there's violence or something, you know, if only we had another David Irvine, it's as if, they haven't been able to reproduce another leader of that uh, caliber. And and I mean, there's a couple of questions that arises for me out of that. I mean, one is it seemed to me at the at you know that at the time that in the years after the Good Friday Agreement, that the kind of the, the the powers that be, if you like, the British and Irish government um, were very keen to see a development of political loyalism, which they hoped presumably would 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 lead people away from paramilitary violence and into the political path in the same way as they were encouraging Republicans on the other side to do so. But yet, it never really took root, did it? I mean, they won a couple of seats, but they never really grew the party, uh, the two parties to become a real significant threat to the more traditional unionist parties, the UUP and the, the, the DUP. And I wonder, I wonder why is that? Well, I, I mean, I was fortunate in the sense that I had a ringside seat for, for years working alongside those in the PUP as someone who lived in the community in Newton Abbey and wanted to see paramilitary uh, groups go away um, because it was really having a very injurious effect on on the community. So I worked with uh, David Irvine, Billy Hutchison, Billy Mitchell, some of these people who, who you know, are, are written about in People Under Siege. And one thing I found most was that even if, though they had the energy and the ability to lead people, they also needed the followers to come with them. And a lot of them were really internally very divided. Some UVF members really absolutely hated David Irvine. I remember once being at a um, a meeting facilitated by uh, the late Billy Mitchell, who was essentially a political strategist for the PUP. Uh, and one, um, you know, 
presumably a UVF commander or or chief, um, said very loudly that he he wouldn't accept what David Irvine was selling because it was wrong, and he thought that David Irvine was essentially a Lundy. Um, and the the feeling in that room was that they that they would eventually lead. This was I should say around two thousand and five, four years before they decommissioned, that they would find a leader in someone like Ian Paisley. Um, or Peter Robinson or someone else, someone in political unionism would come and lead them away from the battlefield. That was a sort of sentiment. Um, and it was just, you know, it, it, it really was quite challenging because they wanted to lead, but their followers were reluctant. And I think internally, what I try to capture to people on the seats is that insecurity, that anxiety politically about whether this is the right thing to do and whether, and, and, you know, in fact, the best thing to do is just to hold on to the weapons. But as I as I make clear to people under siege and have done in my own writing and speaking on this issue for many years, they were using the weapons on themselves, on their own communities. And that had to be um, a line in the sand, a red line. Uh, and unfortunately, um, we now know years later that these paramilitary groups still exist and they still have access to weapons even though they claim they have decommissioned. Now it's clear that there's you know there's criminal self-interest at at play sometimes here but I do wonder listening to what you're saying there you know is there also um, an ideological split in that yes there has been a a long tradition of left-wing working class unionism in 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 certain urban areas but there's also been a tradition of of loyalism as a right or even a far-right phenomenon and there have been links with far-right groups in the United Kingdom Uh, some of these uh, organizations have been happy to associate themselves with with racist and anti-immigrant movements and you mentioned the word populist early on and some of the kind of phenomena that we see uh, among in working class loyalism it seems to me are are more akin to some of the movements that we see in other parts of Europe and maybe the United Kingdom on the far right rather than anything that you see on the left yes I mean of course and I think that you know they were pioneers for this, this sort of you know, populism wasn't thought up in you know the 1990s in Latin America it's long long history and I think that um, in the early nineteen, early to mid nineteen nineties, there were those within paramilitary loyalism who were looking to the United States to right wing ideas and and the people under siege. And, and one of the chapters I look at uh, this I, this concept of leaderless resistance comes from far too much immersion in the militia uh, literature in the U.S. from from the far right. Uh, writings of Lewis Beam and so on, and from um, essentially neo-Nazism. And so there are people who, in the 1990s, who believe that the PUP are basically communists trying to lead them away from this promised land where, you know, they, they you know, they, that little Ulster mentality that they're unwilling to break out of. And that really goes to the, the hard right, I would say. And that the PUP then by the late 1990s, I'm just taking the PUP as an example and that sort of constituency within paramilitary loyalism, um, is left leaning or liberal. And so they are the enemy as much as, um, Republicans. It's bizarre. Um, but also, uh, in, in one sense that, you know, these international type forces intellectually can, um, feed in to how loyalists think at that time and what they do. Uh, and it's, you, you know, unfortunately and sadly, it led to very tragic circumstances in and around Mid-Ulster and North Belfast where parts of the UVF had broken away or were 
were stood down, the likes of Billy Wright and, and others, and where they embarked on um, a murder campaign. So, um, you know, so those ideas definitely do come into it. I think the populism there, the DUP's relationship with paramilitaries has always been the DUP of no um, truck with terrorism, but they wound a lot of people up, and those people who were wound up then went out onto the streets at the time of the Anglo-Irish Agreement and so on, uh, and leading up to and negotiations around the Good Friday Agreement, and did some pretty awful things. And it's a, uh, uh, I mean, all those rejectionist positions. I mean, none of them won. It's a kind of a doctrine of disparities. Where you quote uh, the um, unionist Esmond Esmond Burney saying that, and I quote: "The greatest threat to unionism may be those pessimists within the camp who perpetually talk of sellouts and treachery, and so, uh, so talk themselves into an abyss of despair." And I think at another point you quote a, a unionist politician speaking off the record, saying, "We've only got fifteen years left before we're Hong Kong," he says, or, or something like that, which essentially means North. Northern Ireland is going to be over pretty soon, and that kind of nihilism and despair is is, I mean, it 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 should be depressing even for those who aspire to the end of Northern Ireland. It seems to me because it's not a good not a good place to be to construct a new political dispensa- dispensation. Absolutely. I mean, how do you how do you wake up in the morning and think like that? You know, it's um it's it just for me um having been out of Northern Ireland for quite a while now, fifteen years. But going back repeatedly and seeing uh, people behave in the same way from that community that I left, that sense of belonging that you quoted at the start of the interview about, you know, we we were loyal to each other. I think that's still true, but um, it's it's it isn't in a way because I think that people do break away from that mindset. Uh, and, um, and, you know, because you can't stay negative or pessimistic all the time. It, it's not, it's not good for anyone's mental health. Um, but I, I think politically that there are and always have been parties and political figures who have used that and channel, channel that negativity for their own political ends. Um, but that has never, ever led to, um, you know, a better set of circumstances for those people who are who are there, who are being used as cannon fodder. And that's really what it's a very angry piece of writing, I think, of people under siege, because you can be optimistic. You don't necessarily have to force yourself. You, you know, you can look beyond that pessimism and that nihilism, what I call millenarian uh, loyalism, millenarian republicanism exists, by the way, as well, but millenarian loyalism. And really, you know, even though you're there may be some weird rain dance that they're doing, this sort of tribal witch doctory to bring around the end of Northern Ireland. It hasn't happened yet. And that's the thing people people don't don't really appreciate. No, that's true. And that's a subject we've talked about a lot, actually, on this podcast over the last one. We'd we, we be talking about again. I mean, the book does take us from partition to Brexit and beyond. And Brexit is a landmark point in the story, it seems. It changes the, you know, it's the, it's the first big significant um, point since the Good Friday Agreement, I think. So it changes the rules of the game, or at least a lot of people think it does, including um, including Sinn Féin, who are now the largest party in Northern Ireland, of course. Um, and it seems to have given added impetus on the nationalist Republican side towards moving more quickly towards serious constitutional change. Where does that leave the people who you describe in your book? Well, I mean, the, the, the big kind of vibe at the moment is, and the mood music is around, you know, they should engage in this conversation, unionists and loyalists should engage in the conversation about a new Ireland. But 
I would say that, you know, it's entirely up to them. But I think that people within the unionist community need to start selling the union to those who, um, you know, are not bought into it or who may be bought into it, but not that kind of very sectional identity based unionism that you have to be a prod to be a unionist. Um, and so I think that um, there are those who have different identities now who buy in more to the Northern Irish identity than they do the British or Irish identity, perhaps. Where where are they located in this future of uh, the union between Great Britain and Northern Ireland? And I, I do emphasise the point that it is more than just a connection, a constitutional connection. It's actually uh, a, a way of thinking about uh, politics and a way of thinking about how politics can, can um, sort of... Uh, you know, be effective for people. But but if I, but if I could cut across you there for a sec, it just strikes me reading the book that there's very little of that. You know, I, there's a lot of, and I think I understand it. There's a lot of the actual, the strong feeling of coming from a community, and these are your people, and they're within. You know, you're 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 within that community. There's very little sign from the from any of the protagonists in this book of that positive, proactive argument for the benefits of living in the United Kingdom, whether I agree with them or not. The the argument isn't really being made. It seems to me. Well, it's been made by some people who we aren't hearing about in the media necessarily. It's been made by two people that I interviewed who ironically had been in the PUP and then moved to the UUP. That's uh, Dr. John Kyle and, and Julianne Core Johnson. And I think that they are positive and optimistic about the future and they want the best for everyone. And I mean, not just some predefined community where it's only, you know, a part of East Belfast or North Belfast that includes largely frauds, uh, you know, because Northern Ireland's changing like everywhere else. But the, the sense of community is no longer just shackled to a an ethnic identity. Um, you know, it's it's about including as many people as you can. But yes, of course, that that is a positive outlook. Um, and uh, it's not really gaining the electoral kind of uh, you know, you know, um, uh, returns. Uh, and so uh, I do agree with you. The, the Austrian Unionist Party has attempted to do that by putting across this mantra of a union of people. Uh, and uh, But I don't think that goes far enough. And I don't think that's really strategically um, mapping out a future um, where, you know, people uh, can sell the benefits of, of living in, in the political union uh, with Great Britain. So I think that that, you know, I may be a siren voice in the wilderness, but I do believe that's an alternative to what we have. We hold no surrender. And I'm not talking to anyone about my political beliefs because, you know, they'll have to, they'll have to convince me. I don't think that that's the way politics has, has been going since a good Friday agreement. I think it's about, um, you know, really it's about, um, debating and discussing with people uh, and uh, connecting with them on a human level. Sadly, in Northern Ireland, I don't see that much reconciliation between those two dominant communities. And I think that until that happens, we we can't have that political maturity and the conversations that are necessary to map forward a future that benefits everyone. Um, I think all we have is basically two edifices of a of political um, constructs of societies in Ireland that exclude one another. I, I, you know, I do not think that there's a genuine dialogue there about what the future holds. Uh, and um, certainly within, you know, Northern Ireland, uh, I'm not sure. I, I think that there are people across these islands who have the ability to talk about, um, you know, uh, new political relationships. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of people are very focused on on the old, the old political relationships. 
and uh, in a zero-sum way. If there is um, a renewed impetus towards constitutional change, and that seems quite possible, you know, we're going to have an election in uh, in the Republic at some point in the next two years. It's very likely that, that Sinn Féin will be in government. Sinn Féin uh, are the largest party, as I said, in Northern Ireland. Um, there may or may not be a referendum within the next decade or so. It's not beyond the bounds of possibility. What impact do you think an actual referendum debate campaign, all the action that would go around that, would have upon um, the unionist and, and loyalist people in, in in Northern Ireland? Would it would they double down on the Lundyism? Uh, p- possibly, but I think that um, you know the reality is that these conversations are becoming more audible, uh, and uh, these moves, whether they're uh, real um, or, or otherwise, whether they're just yeah, it's just talk um, or or chatter from a kind of you know a media um, a, a, you know a, a media um, kind of uh, outlook you know or narrative that's being pushed. I think that they'll have to get on board some kind of discussion because the absolutely the awful thing in all of that, um, if there is if there are serious moves towards, for example, a border poll, um, that if you leave people out of that conversation. Um, if you get a very narrow majority, um, we could find ourselves in the same sort of circumstances as Brexit, where you're not bringing everyone along and you have a deeply polarised uh, community as a result. And I do think that that's probably the distinct possibility that if people haven't prepared themselves for that, or they just think that, you know, without any effort, they can get um, the vote to go in their favour. I think they're living in cloud cuckoo land. So, you know, the border poll, regardless of when it's called, or you know, will ask people what they think. Uh, and uh, so they better have the answers, you know, for, for yes or no, uh, whatever way that's framed. Uh, and I think that unionists really need to um, sit down uh, and strategize about how they're going to maintain the union. Um, and how they're going to thwart any kind of attempt to call a border poll without their consensus. Uh, and, you know, if that's what they want to do. But I mean, I don't, I don't know what will happen. There are several scenarios. Uh, but I think that, uh, one of, one of the very interesting points has been made by a contributor, um, to, to this podcast series, Professor Brendan O'Leary is about, you know, losers consent. And I think that's a very interesting, uh, dynamic because um, I would make the case that Northern Ireland is an ethnically divided society. So even if you do get a majority of people voting for a United Ireland, um, what happens to those people who have withheld their consent? Have you know do not want anything to do with it? I think that's a very serious conversation that must also be happening. Uh, we should also think about that. It's a really tricky question, isn't it? It's come up. It's, I've come up in various conversations I've had, including with including with Brendan O'Leary, and indeed I, I recall a couple of years ago with Mary Mary Lou Macdonald as well. Um, some people bristle at it because they see they they interpret losers' consent as meaning losers' veto, which is which is not the same thing. And there's an associated question about whether um, you know a United Ireland needs to come about with the consent of a majority of unionists, which is not the understanding of the Good Friday Agreement. But I, you, you do correctly make the point that a, you know, a razor edge uh, decision one way or the other will settle nothing, um, certainly on the ground in, in, in the kind of communities that you're, that you're writing about. Well, yes, I mean, if people under siege could 
very much uh, be the story of of the nationalist community in Northern Ireland, uh, you know, because they didn't want it. You know, the, the point the point that's often made is that they found themselves as a minority um, within, you know, this new entity that was uh, constructed. Um, and so what, what you find is that kind of reverse, I guess. Um, and uh, there are, um, by the way, loyalists who have given thought to this. And any time I've pressed them have tried to sort of persuade me that it's unlikely to happen, that they'll find themselves in the United Ireland. And if they did, it would be more Bosnia than Hong Kong. And I mean, that is a very scary prospect because those conflicts in the 1990s um, led to genocide and ethnic cleansing. And, uh, you know, and that's, again, that feeds into that political insecurity and the anxiety. Uh, and I don't think, I think that selling a positive message is the best way forward for the unionist community. The ability to withstand change and to run with change, regardless of what that change looks like. And I think that has to be like the way forward for, for them. Uh, People Under Siege, The Unionists of Northern Ireland from Partition to Brexit and Beyond is published by Merrion Press. Uh, Aaron, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, you. Uh, that's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Connor. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye. Thanks for listening and have a happy 12th.